from downtown Milwaukee, welcome to Money Talk with Bob Landis. Each week, professional advisors from Landis and Company Investments discuss the latest financial developments, offering timely insight and long-term perspective. This is Money Talk for September 15th, 2023. Check in the calendar. The Brewers are home with the Nationals this weekend, and then they're off to St. Louis. Your undefeated Green Bay Packers play the Atlanta Falcons in Hotlanta this Sunday, and it's National Double Cheeseburger Day for those days when a single cheeseburger just isn't enough. Let's start in the state of Florida. No injuries were reported after a helicopter door fell off and landed in a furniture store at 3 in the afternoon. Fortunately, no one on the ground was injured while they were waiting in line for dinner. Let's go to Chicago for the next two. A Chicago TV news crew was robbed at gunpoint while reporting on a string of robberies. And then there was a shooting at White Sox Park. It turned out to be an accidental discharge. A woman smuggled a gun into the ballpark in the folds of her belly fat. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And finally, our headline of the week, maybe, maybe even of the month, comes from Florida. The Tampa Bay Times reports a Tampa Bay woman fulfills a childhood dream of becoming a stripper just like her mom. On the podcast today, we have Steve Giles, <laughs> Joel Dreesang, and wrapping up the week, here's Kyle Titting. Well, thanks, Max. Uh, happy to have you back this week. The NASDAQ, unfortunately, not as happy. Down four-tenths of a percent this week, closing at 13,708. The S&P down seven points for the week. That's two-tenths of a percent, closing at 44.50. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average, after a pretty rough Friday, a triple witching Friday, uh, added for the week but down 289 points on the day, up 42 points for the week, one-tenth of a percent, closing at 34.619 for the Dow for the year, up 5.9%, including dividends. The S&P 500 up 17.1, and the NASDAQ, despite giving back just a little this week, still up a stellar 31.7. You know, maybe a a good place to start today, Joel, a reminder for all of those listening, if they haven't already signed up for the seminar, we've got our first seminar next Tuesday evening, uh, morning seminar the following Wednesday, um, and, you know, maybe a a chance for you and I both to encourage uh, encourage people to come out. We've got a few more seats left. Yeah, um, uh, an easy way to do it is to go to our website, Click on the contact, and then at the top of the screen, there will be another. It'll talk about the seminars, and you just click that, and it gives you all the information right there. And of course, I think uh, a good opportunity for us to update on markets, update on the economy, uh, more importantly, uh, get some good snacks, a good beverage, <laughs> um, and you know, see your advisor, shake hands. And uh, it's been a while since we've been able to do this. And see fellow clients for the first time in four years. Who's the headline speaker, Kyle? Uh, so Bob Landis will be uh, kicking things off for us on uh, next Tuesday night. Uh, I'll be talking a little bit as well. And Dave Sandstrom just giving some updates on Secure Act 2.0. So uh, overall, uh, a good a good crowd expected. Uh, and I think some good comments from, from Bob and company. Um, you know, maybe with that, uh, touch just a bit on some of the challenges we saw today in particular uh, triple Witching Friday. This happens once a quarter. Uh, it's a real, uh, you know, throwaway technical kind of day where volume's really, really high because of some expirations of options. Uh, you see some kind of weird movement, and we saw a fairly meaningful decline, uh, less to do with fundamentals, as most day-to-day trading is, and more to do with 
you know, just traders trying to get positioned the way they're supposed to be positioned going forward, at least the way they think. And so I don't put too much stock in today's decline. I don't put too much stock in maybe uh, the, the week down a little bit on the NASDAQ, positive a little bit on the Dow. That's a good sign when you consider how strong the year's been on the NASDAQ more broadly. But we had news today, Steve, on uh, striking auto union workers. Uh, it's been a, a while since we've had to really consider the prospects of that. Um, I think a lot of reasons for the strike, a lot of reasons why workers right now feel like maybe they can capture a little more. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts just initially on kind of what's going on with the big three automakers here in the U.S.? Well, I think, interestingly, the timing, obviously, of the strike comes to mind. Uh, here we are. Um, 18 months into the Fed uh, raising rates. Uh, the stock market has uh, recovered some from their sell-off last year, yet companies, and as we've seen the economy, uh, is still chugging along, albeit not as high as what we were a year and a half ago. But a lot of what these UAW union workers are looking at is the profits from those uh, auto manufacturers. And and they haven't gotten raises in a while, and I think they want a piece of the pie, and uh, they have every right to strike, and some of their demands, I think, are reasonable, and some of their other demands uh, might be a little bit far-fetched, but uh, as far as the news today, they finally decided to walk off the job at three different plants, and um, we'll find out more about how they're going to come to terms with, um, well, the union will come to terms with the auto manufacturers, but I think they have every right to ask for something. The question is, how much can you ask for, and how much are you are you able to get? And that's really what this all comes down to. And Steve, I think it's also interesting because it's at a time, much with the screenwriters who are on strike and the Actors Guild on strike, um, where there are technological changes, where there are you know there's more concern about um, artificial intelligence. Um, and its role in, in manufacturing and in making movies and, and how that might, you know, dislocate some of those workers. And so they're looking for some more security as well. Well, absolutely. And, and if you can build into your contract the certainty that you're going to have a job no matter what happens with respect to the technology surrounding that job, and, and the Screenwriters Guild is, is another example, hey, why, why do you guys need us if you're going to just automatically write it with chat GPT, um, you know, we, we, we see the same thing with the auto workers. How, how is it that you're going to continue to need us if you continue to automate everything? And so they want some guarantees that they're not going to lose their jobs, uh, much like the screenwriters. Uh, they want those guarantees that they're not going to lose their jobs or lose their benefits if they aren't, quote unquote, needed anymore. I think this is really the heart of these conversations right now is that um, you know, the, the, the individuals responsible for really thinking about this organized labor are seeing the writing on the wall that um, there's always been this transition, especially in the American economy, towards productivity growth, productivity gains. And it's what's driven, I think, a, a large portion of the profits over the years of so many large corporations, but also it's what drives our economic growth. And so if we're going to talk about an environment in which, well, to begin with, over the last 30 years, we've lost a third of the auto workers that are out there to just other jobs or to the fact that the auto companies didn't need the labor anymore because they were able to automate it. And I think the, the, the labor negotiators are looking at an environment going ahead where maybe another 20 or 30 percent of that work isn't going to be needed. And so one of the things that's been thrown out is perhaps we move to more fully four-day work weeks. 
um, well, there you go. There's a 20% reduction in labor. The catch is now you can do it without cutting people. You can do it by just having those people work less. And if the hours they're working are fewer, but the money they're making is more, then I think there's a net gain on both sides. And Steve, I think the most important point is one you made earlier, which is perhaps this comes down to training. You know, the idea that well, yes, there are meaningful changes afoot when it comes to how we produce things, how we uh, supervise that production, even how we uh, calculate risks in the insurance industry, for example. That's more or less moving towards an environment in which we don't need as many people doing it as we did before, but we're going to need those people for other things. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we've seen net losses in jobs uh, over the last few years in places like manufacturing uh, as things become automated. But uh, when you look at the service sector, when you look at uh, computer sciences, when you look at healthcare, we're seeing net gains in jobs. And maybe the uh, big three auto manufacturers should focus some of their attention on perhaps training and new skill sets for some of these workers if they want to retain them. Maybe instead of uh, learning how to use the rivet machine, you instead learn how to code the robotic arm uh, that's doing the riveting for you. And, of course, the catch is now ChatGPT can program that arm as well. So you're competing with artificial intelligence. Does that mean the Screenwriters Guild gets involved as well? Uh, I think I think that is the, the fun part of this conversation is that we very much are on the verge of some pretty meaningful shifts in the way that work is done. Well, and this has happened in our country before. As you allude to, we all started as a bunch of farmers, and we had an agrarian society for the better part of 150, 200 years. And then the Industrial Revolution came along, and we had growing pains as everybody moved into the city. Uh, that carried us through World War II, obviously. We were the biggest producing country on the planet, but now we're morphing into more of a service economy, and we've got those similar growing pains that we just have to work through. Yeah, so change, the constant, and I think the other piece we're realizing is that um, the better we get at implementing change, the faster it happens. And so, um, yeah, it took us a couple hundred years to move from the farms into the cities in manufacturing, and then it took us maybe another hundred years to move from manufacturing to, you know, all of the computer automation that takes place, and maybe it's only a decade or so, and we've already transitioned now into an environment in which a lot of that marginal labor just isn't needed anymore. Yeah, and interestingly, it all comes down to productivity, right? So here we are in an environment where you still have unemployment under 4%, um, and this goes kind of back to Alan Greenspan, right? How can you have low inflation and low unemployment at the same time? Well, productivity. It all comes down to productivity. And if we can find a way as a country, as a society, to maintain that productivity, and keep our unemployment low, uh, I think we're all doing ourselves uh, a good service. Uh, no pun intended. Joel, we got some data on inflation this week, and perhaps a good segue here, just given that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, signs that the Fed's having some trouble reaching that 2% target, maybe a, a move back in the wrong direction, but maybe one month does not a trend make. Yeah, Kyle, it's, you know, it's a reminder that progress doesn't necessarily move in a straight line. So um, remember a year ago, ba back last June, uh, the c consumer price index, the, the broadest measure of inflation, was at an annual rate of 9.1%. Well, um, in August, we found out this week that it was 3.7%, um, but that's up from 3.2% in July and 3% in June. But it's still a lot lower than that 
9.1%. And so there there was some confusion, some dismay, perhaps, uh, about, you know, that we're going the last couple of months, we've gone up with that inflation rate, but it's still lower than it was before. And people are calling it a slowdown, a cool down, and, and that it's just basically stalled right now. And of course, the Fed meets next week, and the market doesn't really believe that any of the news we've had the last month or two changes the expectation for rates. You know, the the idea that, um, well, we got one print that's a little higher than we hoped, we got one or two prints that pointed inflation back in the other direction, isn't enough to change the Fed's mind to raise rates again, to really force the issue. They're going to hold steady, or at least close to where they are now, with the idea that, hey, we need some more time for this to work its way through the system to understand what the implications really are. And consumers don't believe that, um, you know, that this slowdown in, in the cool down, the, the, the pause that's happening is, is complete, that that, that um, lower rate of inflation is going to take off again. Um, that There was a, a report today by the University of Michigan on its consumer sentiment, and the, the consumers they interviewed, um, it, their expectations for inflation are the lowest they've been in th- almost three years. Um, and, and so that bodes well for for what may be ahead. And maybe one little sneak peek at some seminar uh, information. Uh, one of the things that I know I want to talk about is how consumers uh, are starting to finally see that excess savings from COVID wear off. We spent really the first 18 months uh, of the pandemic saving far more than we had in a very long time, building up these cash reserves. JP Morgan estimate, estimates that by August of 2021, we'd built up about $2.1 trillion in excess savings, sitting on basically the, the balance sheets of consumers, of households. And then we turned around after that August 2021, and now we've spent the last two years spending it back down. And we're back, we think, to about $200 billion. And by October, J.P. Morgan estimates that all of those excess savings are gone. And that's money that consumers were spending on all those hobbies, on all those things that, um, you know, maybe potentially once the excess is gone, now I'm back to just doing what I normally was doing. Um, and so maybe that's one more reason why they're not seeing inflation as the long-term problem. They know that if excess spending was part of the issue, it's not going to be going on f- from them for that much longer. And Kyle, we had a report this week on retail spending, and um, that showed some of the things. Some of the things you're talking about. Um, retail spending went up 0.6 percent in August. Um, that was up from 0.5 percent in July, but more than half of that was because the cost of gas went up. So um, this report doesn't, uh, you know, uh, doesn't adjust for inflation. So, but if you take gas out of the picture, the the retail spending went up only 0.2 percent, which was less than half of the rate that it went up in July. And and in particular categories, we can see maybe what you're what you're talking about um, the the furniture and uh, stores, places like where you know Max was talking about where you know, plane doors or helicopter doors are falling in the store. Nobody's there because furniture sales went down a percent, a whole percent in the month of August. And it, year to year, the sales are down 7.8%. Another category was um, sporting goods and hobbies and, and musical instruments and bookstores. The sales were uh, declined 
actually 1.6% in August. That's the biggest decline since January of 2022. And then a big category, you know, and, and economists look at this a lot because it's a category where when you're feeling good about, you know, your personal finances and your job and you've got money in your pocket, you go out and you go to a restaurant, you go to a bar, and those sales were uh, up 0.3% in in August, but that's the lowest increase in that category since March. So we're seeing more signs that maybe people are cutting back a little. Is this the end of revenge spending, Joel? It might be, Because yes. I've been using that as my excuse <laughs> to just go out and buy things, and if I can't use it as an excuse anymore, it might be over. Sure. Well, you've got $200 billion left, Steve, so once that $200 billion I don't have spent, you know, I think the uh, the other big headline this week was uh, an initial public offering, the largest we've had in a, a while now from uh, British chip designer Arm. Uh, and quite honestly, you know, this isn't something we talk about all that much. It's not something we need to talk about all that much, except that this particular initial public offering signals, uh, I think, one more uh, kind of confirmation that the artificial intelligence transition, the transition towards kind of pretty significant investment in chip making and semiconductor manufacturing is a real story that we we have some confirmation on. Arm, at least based on its closing price and its first day of trading, was trading at 110 times its last 12-month earnings. That's a, a very, very uh, high number relative to what most of the market trades at, which is somewhere in the high teens, low 20s. Uh, Steve, you know, we don't talk about individual stocks. We don't talk about going to buy that initial public offering. But um, clearly, there are some stocks out there that people seem to just be be finding very attractive. Uh, is ARM the next Wang Computers? It would be my response. Um, if anybody gets that reference, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> You know, we've been here before. Uh, a, a safe reminder that the reason we have balance is because, yeah, some of this stuff is going to work. Probably a lot more of it isn't. Uh, yeah, and from a diversification standpoint, that's why we like mutual funds. If you do get a mutual fund manager that decides to engage in some of this position, at least they're diversified enough when it goes wrong uh, that they don't look really dumb. Uh, obviously, if it works, hey, you've got a little bit of upside. And that's always the goal is uh, don't make too big a mistake on the downside and participate on the up. With that, one more reminder. Uh, we've got a seminar next week, Tuesday. We'd love to have you out. Um, beyond that, it is uh, a pleasure doing the show for you each week. We enjoy talking to you, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to Money Talk with Bob Landis. If you have a financial question you want answered on next week's show, email it to Talk at Landis.com. To keep informed throughout the week, visit our Money Talk page at Landis.com. <laughs>